Welcome to the CUNY Lecture Series. In this edition, hashtag the people raise their voice. Hashtag politics gives people who don't have big money to donate to candidates a way to compete with big donors, or so says social media guru Alan Rosenblatt in a talk at Baruch. Hashtags like Black Lives Matter aggregate conversations and opinions, creating powerful social capital to compete with financial capital, Rosenblatt says. The hashtag has made it easier for like-minded people to affiliate across distances and interact, says assistant professor Catherine Behar. She noted that this presidential race has been called the first social media election. One thing we are seeing as never before is the strange sight of news media covering social media, Behar says. The hashtag makes interaction with the candidates easier. When Donald Trump is tweeting, says Rosenblatt, he's actually interacting directly with a voter who might not have had any opportunity to meet the candidate. Many of you have heard this campaign being referred to as the first social media election. And this is what we'll be exploring in tonight's panel. So last but not least, I'd like to thank most of all our guest speakers this evening, Megan Lieberman, Valerie Strait, and Alan Rosenblatt. We are extremely fortunate to have a chance to hear from these three experts with really extensive combined experience at the intersections of social media, politics, and news. I'll be introducing them to you in more depth momentarily. And the structure of this evening will be that we'll hear Megan, Valerie, and Alan each speak briefly for about 10 minutes on a particular aspect of this thing we're calling hashtag politics. And then we'll open up to a broader discussion forum among the panelists and with all of you. So I'm anticipating that we'll have lots of time for questions and answers and conversation together at the end. To get us started, I'd first like to take a few minutes now to frame out the context for hashtag politics. In our conversations leading up to this panel, some of us noted how in this first social media election, one thing we are seeing like never before is the strange sight of news media covering social media which suggests that some real changes are afoot. And I want to suggest this, that we can use the 2016 presidential campaign as a cultural lens for understanding, on the one hand, the political effects of social media, and on the other, the effects of social media on politics. And when we do this, we may see a changing conception of the political individual and shifts in the dynamics of affiliation, including a blending or transformation of people into issues. So I'll talk more about what I mean by that in a moment. But in fact, I think that the campaign provides such a powerful lens for the reason that just like social media itself, democratic processes mediate this same relationship between unique individuals and an aggregated social whole. Traditionally, in democratic process, this has meant things like individuals getting together and forming a party, or unique votes being counted together and resulting in a group decision. But as we'll see, social media is impacting not only how individuals uh, affiliate politically, but also what constitutes an individual or a political individual in the first place. So let's take an example or two using hashtags. With a hashtag like Black Lives Matter, we see collectively authored public utterances, which is to say political speech, that cannot be traced back to a single individual. 
nevertheless, this tag has emerged as a central voice in the 2016 election. An Mina, writing about the appearance of hashtags in physical protest spaces, which she calls hashtagging the streets, discusses the ability of hashtags to mediate how individuals affiliate. Not only do hashtags create solidarities across physical distances at scales that can't be achieved through face-to-face -face contact alone, they also, and I'm quoting from her now, collapse the false premises of digital dualism, which means that hashtags can interweave political activity online and offline. Emphasizing this social side of social media, the hash symbol is a symbol for affiliation. She writes, quote, the hash symbol visually suggests a bond, and the words suggest what the bond is about. So if I say the phrase, Black Lives Matter, that's a, a kind of traditional political utterance, right? I'm expressing a, an opinion. But if I add the hashtag in front of those words, then I'm working in this process of affiliation. However, hashtags may also engender political ambiguity, as for example, when hashtags are hijacked. Hashtag Hillary so qualified is a recent case in point. Likewise, because political speech can be messaged to an individual through mentions, searching mentions shows both speech issuing from that account alongside speech directed to that account, which might include divergent views. Retweets further blur the lines of individual authorship or personal political voice, potentially causing controversy for candidates like Donald Trump, who has been accused of misogyny, racism, and so forth, in part for retweeting insults that were originally posted by, by his followers. So who's speaking in a retweet? Hashtag politics also reflects the general rise of keywords within data-driven culture. I think this is really important. It's shifting political speech from individuals to issues. When political personae become like keywords or memes, they succeed or fail not on the basis of content per se, but on the capacity to be always trending. Tonight, Megan Lieberman will connect this to a convergence in what she calls politics as pop culture. Perhaps surprisingly, social media also seems to demand an unmediated relationship to the individual. Valerie Strait will discuss the perception of candidness as a form of social media currency in what she terms the cult of authenticity. With this memification of candidates, individuals can be tagged and circulated in ways that replicate the circulation of tags both allegorically and technically. Alan Rosenblatt will describe how interaction on social media can translate into votes and how through combinations of tags, which is a form of strategic affiliation at the level of tags themselves, individuals' messages can get heard and gain traction and prominence out of chaotic streams. In each of these examples, we'll see how social media is transforming contemporary politics and culture and renegotiating relationships between individual people and aggregated forms of sociality. So we're so fortunate to have these three speakers with us tonight, and I'll introduce them now to you in order of presentation. We'll hear first from Megan. Megan Lieberman is the editor-in-chief of the Yahoo News and Finance Group and a vice president at Yahoo. She oversees Yahoo News, Yahoo Politics, Yahoo Finance, and the Yahoo homepage, which includes directing all of the original news and elections coverage. 
Before joining Yahoo, she was deputy news editor for digital development at the New York Times, where she drove some of the most successful digital initiatives, including Nate Silver's multi-platform presence. She also anchored a twice-weekly live politics show and the Times 2012 live elections coverage. Prior to her most recent role at the Times, she was deputy editor of the New York Times Magazine, where she was responsible for all digital features and strategy. She also directed the magazine's political coverage and created the Motherlode blog. Megan graduated from Barnard College and Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism. Next, we'll hear from Valerie. Valerie Strait is embarking on a new role at Google leading publisher community outreach for an open source initiative called AMP, or Accelerated Mobile Pages. She joined Google five years ago as a manager on YouTube's creator solutions and audience development team. Um, developing data-driven insights and platform strategies to help creators drive repeat viewership and engagement on their video channels. Previously, she managed global social media and audience participation initiatives for CNN Worldwide. She has deep roots in media, and she began her career as a local news producer in San Diego and San Francisco, then spent five years at CNN Digital piloting editorial products and launching original digital content for CNN.com, iReport, CNN.com Video, and CNN.com Live. Valerie holds a master's degree in media ecology from NYU's Department of Media, Culture, and Communication. And finally, we'll hear from Alan. Alan Rosenblatt, PhD, is a digital communications and social media strategist, professor, and thought leader with over 25 years' experience at the digital intersection of politics, advocacy, media, and education. He is Senior Vice President of Digital Strategy at Turner 4D, providing world-renowned training and strategic counsel to organizations seeking to use social and digital media more effectively. In 1995, he taught the world's first university course on digital politics at George Mason University, and he's been teaching it ever since. Media Bureau Networks, MBN, which Alan co-founded in 1998, produced four daily live-streamed talk shows from the 2000 Republican and Democratic National Conventions. Alan also co-founded Action, Take Action News and Internet Advocacy Roundtable. He is an adjunct professor at George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management, John Hopkins University, and American University, where he teaches courses on social, on social media and digital politics. He regularly writes for socialmediatoday.com and Turner 40's Carpe Colloquium blog, among others. And on social media, he can be found at Dr. Dr. Uh, sorry, at Dr. Digipol, right? D-R-D-I-G-I-P-O-L. So please join me at, in welcoming our guests. Thank you. Uh, I have been editing and assigning and directing politics coverage for a long time now. So presidential elections have loomed large in my life for a while. But in fact, um, my whole life has kind of run on election cycles since I was a child, because as some of you may know, my, my mother is an esteemed member of the faculty here. She runs the Survey Research Center and is a distinguished lecturer. And when I was a kid, she ran the elections unit at NBC News. And so every four years, you know, she would disappear for a few months to an input center in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and sometime in November we would get her back. Um, and when you grow up in a family like that, you kind of can't help becoming a bit of a politics junkie. And so I did crazy things for years afterwards like that, like jump rope to Washington Journal on C-SPAN for about 15 years every morning. Um, 
And I, so I, I posit that I am not the typical American in terms of my level of interest in elections or my level of attention to them. But I, I think in this past year, we've seen something really interesting happen in America, which is sort of the whole country's culture has run on an election cycle, right? We've had tens of millions of people turning into Republican primary debates and Democratic primary debates. We've had people watching live streams of political rallies like they were rock concerts on their phones, on their TVs, on their tablets. Um, we've had people talking around water coolers or whatever the equivalent of a water cooler now is about how delegates are chosen to conventions. And, you know, I get asked this question a lot, which is like, what happened? How did we get here? You know, how did we get to the point where we have a reality TV star who is now the all but official nominee of one of our two major political parties? And my answer to that is pretty simple, which is that I do think in a very significant way, politics has really become the pop culture. Um, and, you know, we've had 24 million people, close to 24 million people, watch both of the first two Republican uh, debates. And just for a context, that's more than the Golden Globes, that's more than the Emmys, that's more than the NBA Finals, that's more than the World Series, that's more than any other entertainment or sports event other than the Super Bowl or the Oscars, right? Um, and, you know, those events are not just things that that a bunch of people tune into. They're things we actually review now in our culture pages. The TV critics at the New York Times and Yahoo and countless other organizations review the performances of these candidates, right? They, what their body language is like, what their facial expressions were like, who looked strong, who looked weak, um, what their voices were like, right? Uh, so it, it's become a matter of performance. And obviously that's been an evolving thing in our culture for decades. Um, in 1985, Neil Postman published a great book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, where he warned that our political culture was becoming more of an entertainment culture, that you know, it was becoming less and less about ideas and policies and more and more about how people looked and performed on TV. But I actually think, personally, and having covered many, many election cycles now, that there was actually kind of a seminal moment in 2008 with the candidacy of Barack Obama, who I think of as sort of our first rock star presidential candidate. Um, you know, he attracted tens of thousands of people to rallies, not just here, but overseas. He was an international celebrity. He had his face on a kind of rock star-like poster that was not done by the campaign, that was done by a fan and became a kind of cultural icon itself. Um, he was mocked by his opponent, John McCain, for being too much of a kind of vapid celebrity. He was talked as being too much like Paris Hilton and uh, Britney Spears, the Kim Kardashians of their time, uh, and, you know, and they, you know, basically for being famous for nothing but being famous. And you know, there, there was, Barack Obama had a lot of serious policies, but there was a grain of truth in that to the extent that a lot of what powered that candidacy was his personal biography, his narrative. He had a storyline that a lot of Americans attached to and fell in love with and made them feel you know, better about themselves and about the country, and, and, and a lot of it was about that story. And, and now we've seen sort of the full fusion of, of pop culture and, and politics in the candidacy of Donald Trump, and uh, who's really seized on uh, our entire media culture and our social media culture and taken incredible advantage of that to propel himself. Um, and, you know, a lot of that has to do with the specific gifts of Trump. He's an incredible marketer. He's an incredible user of media, and he's a really remarkable use, uh, practitioner of social media. But it's also about the moment that he came into, right? Um, one of the sort of facets of the digital age and the social media age is that there's a bit of a cultural vacuum, right? There's, we all kind of watch what we want to watch and read what we want to read, and we do it when we want and where we want and how we want. And so there's very few cultural convening events anymore. 
Um, and that's why I think things like the Super Bowl and the Oscars still have the power that they do, right? Because they're things that we all do together at the same time. And so even if you don't care about the teams and you don't even like football and you didn't see any of the movies, you kind of watch because you know the rest of America is watching and it's sort of an opportunity to be part of something larger than yourself. And now with social media, there's this opportunity to have a real-time conversation with your friends and kind of the world about those events. And, you know, in terms of this sort of the only kind of ongoing, long-running cultural convening event that we have as a country now are our presidential campaigns, right? Because it affects us all. We all have the same president, whether we like it or not. Um, and, you know, it's something that involves all of us. And so, you know, it affects the way that we live. And the, it has these tentpole events, these certain things that happen on certain dates at certain times that we can all tune into. And if it has enough compelling characters and storylines and things that we care to see, we do tune in because we want to be part of that real conversation, right? When I started in this business and I started covering campaigns, the way that it worked was that, you know, there was a debate, and some people watched it, not that many, most of them journalists and a couple other people who really cared about that kind of thing. And uh, you know, afterwards, people would get on cable TV and they would you know, pontificate about what happened and who won and who lost and who was good and what the big moments were. And you know, the rest of America would wake up in the morning and they would read those columns or watch those clips, and that was the consensus. That was what happened. And now, and this has been evolving over the last couple of presidential cycles, but I think really took firm hold in 2012 um, when we had, you know, when I really think that the, the campaigns themselves understood that they could shape that, they could shape that narrative, they could shape that conversation, they could shape what that consensus opinion was in real time on social, particularly on Twitter. And you saw uh, campaigns and, and supporters of, of campaigns and opponents of campaigns and, and journalists all sort of jumping in to kind of give their opinions in real time. And, and really, by the time an event was over, that consensus opinion had formed. It was baked. And it was done before the thing was over. You knew, like, on that first debate in 2012 for the presidential debate, like, you knew that it was a bad night for Barack Obama, like, 15 minutes in, and that, that opinion just got solidified on social over the night. And, you know, because we now can follow these events not on, on one screen but on several, and, it's, and we've really become able to participate in that conversation and help form that consensus opinion. And, and Trump really understood all of this instinctively. He really, you know, is a person who, uh, as much as he's a builder of buildings, is really a builder of a brand, and he's built that brand through media and, and in more recent years through social media. And so he knew how to use the tools that are now available to really shape a persona and to play into this culture. Um, and you know, I, I, I will paraphrase uh, my, we, as we were discussing earlier, my, my brilliant national political columnist, Matt Bai, who actually knows Ellen as well, um, who just said, you know, generally politics is tedium and, and Trump is reality TV. And, and the fact is that reality TV is a lot more colorful and a lot more fun <laughs> than most of the tedium that is politics. Um, so, just before I finish up, I wanted to just show some pictures that one of my uh, reporters, our national correspondent, Holly Bailey, who's a great reporter but also a remarkable photographer, and she's been following Trump for the past, like, five months. We're going to let her come home and do her laundry soon. Um, and, she, uh, and she has been taking pictures on the trail, um, not just of Trump, but of the crowds. And I think you see this kind of where 
where pop has met politics in the Trump crowds in, in a really interesting way, and they're just really pretty pictures, though. Um, this is in Iowa, uh, just about a week before the caucuses there. That is a, it's hard to even uh, get the scale of this. I saw this in person, but this is something that someone erected in their backyard. It is a house, not a life-size, but a house-sized uh, poster of Donald Trump, um, which became this real spectacle that people came to, it became like a landmark, and that all the reporters and also just various people would come visit. It was sort of a a site in and of itself, but it's the kind of thing, he was a Trump super fan, and the Trump super fans are kind of like no other super fans, uh, have a lot of political reporters who've done, you know, three, four, five presidential campaigns, and the Trump super fans are, it, it, they are kind of like celebrity fans. They come with paraphernalia for him to sign, and it, it's quite remarkable. Um, this is another per, uh, kid from, uh, also from Iowa, uh, in the days before the caucuses. And I, I just show up because there's a lot of kids who come up sh to things festooned in Trump stuff, but also that his mom let him wear a bomb the shit out of ISIS pin just kind of struck me, so. Um, this is a woman, uh, I can't remember where she's from. She's in, Flo she's in Fort Worth, Fort Worth, Texas, um, who came in a dress of all sh that she had made of laminated... Um, magazine photos and book covers and things, photos of Trump and a bag, and it was quite a thing. Uh, this is one of the women at his, uh, at Mar-a-Lago, and one of his, the, you know, Florida, his Florida election night event. The other thing about F Trump events, as all of you have seen, is that they're not like any normal election night event. He's, they, the reporters all joked that at some point they were going to have stopped at every single uh, golf club that Trump owned along the way because he holds all his ends there, and it's just like friends and fans of his, and they, this woman just said a lot about the Florida scene. Um, this is also Trump, like, unlike, I mean, they all, lots of candidates have, like, pictures of themselves, that, but Trump has in every place he is, I think this is one of his Florida properties, like, his own personal walls of fame that are just all unto the glory of him, and this is, all, that picture is from his WWE days when he was shaving the head of, it's like, man... Um, this is someone from uh, South Carolina who, again, came with the Trump doll. A lot of them come with the Trump Apprentice dolls um, in the hopes that they will actually encounter Mr. Trump. Almost none of them ever do, um, and that he will sign them. Uh, this is a Truckers for Trump event, and uh, one of the truckers had pa painted this mural on his own personal truck. Uh, these are just more women from Mar-a-Lago because I couldn't help it. Um, and this, I think, really is about, uh, we had a long talk with this guy who actually talked about his social media and the fact that he says it straight on social. And one of the reasons that people attach to Trump is that they feel like he's unfiltered and so hence that message. And then finally, this is uh, from, from Nevada, from Las Vegas, a, a Trump impersonator. But one of the, the reason I showed this is that at any Trump event, anywhere in America, you will have... Trump followers who are dressed up as Trump, often with wigs, often small children with wigs and suits, and they always wear the red tie. And, you know, I, again, this is, you know, mostly when, when people dress up or have masks or whatever of a candidate, it's a, it's a mockery thing. And um, in the case of Trump, it's about sort of admiration and, and his stardom. Uh, so uh, shout out to Holly Bailey, who's a really great photographer.
So I'd like to draw from my experiences uh, working in the trenches of CNN uh, at the onset of uh, what we call the great disruption to legacy media. Um, so I'm gonna kind of go back a little bit, um, you know, go back in time a little bit, um, really only about 10 years ago or less. Um, and then also being at the epicenter of the same disruption at YouTube uh, from the other side, working um, at a technology company. So the disruption then, um, and, and is it still happening now, is a movement toward what I'm calling, or what I'm considering a personification and a cult of authenticity, spawned by the proliferation of social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, and YouTube. So the viewers of today are really hungry to engage and collaborate on these platforms, and they've come to expect this access and authentic engagement. So back in 2009, uh, when I was an interactive and audience experience producer, um, actually, I didn't really have a title. I think I made that up. Um, <laughs> it was uh, quite an uphill battle galvanizing newsrooms uh, to adopt social media tools for news gathering purposes, um, or even to solicit audience feedback and engagement. Um, skepticism came from all corners of the newsroom, you know, even directly from the mouths of, of very familiar news anchors who once admonished social media live on television. Their skepticism morphed into reluctant acceptance and eventually overzealous addiction. For newsroom leaders, uh, the skepticism subsided with successful adoption and experiments, which resulted in promising metrics demonstrating audience growth and loyalty, more time spent, and chatter. Um, some called it buzz um, or conversation on the social back channels. Um, and then when the marketers entered the picture, they dubbed it share a voice. For newsroom leaders, the skepticism, um, you know, it, it subsided with that adoption and these experiments, but from an audience development standpoint, um, and really what from the need or standpoint of the audience, um, one would argue that, you know, a quiet frustration had been building and finally erupted into a general distrust of legacy news media, um, and in particular, the artifice of television news, you know, wedded to this traditional storytelling format and these stale formulas, um, which appear to stage the presentation or the performance of objectivity. So I'm posing that this new brand of authenticity uh, that really thrives on social media actually decouples objectivity from journalism um, and actually emerges in the form of vlogs, tweets, and selfies, uh, trading objectivity for candor and spontaneity. So if you happen to work in PR or anywhere near PR, it's kind of a nightmare scenario. Um, you know, effectively turns you into a full-time firefighter for your client or organization. And those were very difficult times. <laughs> um, so at CNN, it, you know, it certainly put us in an uncomfortable position, um, realizing that in order to remain relevant in this changing landscape, uh, we'd have to close our eyes and just leap in. Um, otherwise, you know, we'd be left behind. Um, but all the while remaining conscious of the profound risks to a household brand um, suddenly facing this inevitability of having to trust employees, empower them to publicly personify CNN as a brand with a lot less oversight. So some anchors wouldn't even come near social media um, initially. In fact, Anderson Cooper wouldn't touch Twitter in those early days. Um, his producers regular tweet, regularly tweeted on behalf of, of Anderson and his personal account 
And you could find a disclaimer in his bio back then. Um, it said, quote, a behind the scenes look at Anderson Cooper 360, written by Anderson Cooper and the show's correspondents and producers, end quote. In order to differentiate himself from his staff, he would basically sign out AC at the end of his tweets, suggesting, you know, this is, this is actually coming from me. Which is interesting, because there was this confusion about whether or not it should really come from the person, but the audience really came to expect that. Um, so some news anchors um, at CNN at the time, Rick Sanchez, he actually leapt, he leapt right in, you know, to, to social media, he dove right in. Um, he actively used Twitter and had the network's largest number of followers for any news anchor or personality at the time. He routinely incorporated viewer tweets, questions, and comments in his live afternoon show. And for a while, he bridged this, you know, anchor social media divide for the network, um, you know, representing the potential of this evolving medium and, you know, what, what would it mean for television and how could it change television and audience interaction with television. Um, ironically, uh, well, Sanchez was eventually fired um, for perhaps pushing his candidness too far, um, but it turns out that really pulling the curtain behind journalism and dismantling this myth of objectivity really leads dangerously close to something else, and that's punditry. Not all employees can be outspoken, within reason, ambassadors for their brand or their, their news organization. So naturally, the number of ca these casualties of social media went up. So many people were fired, you know, many of them including some of the most incredible journalists I've had the pleasure of working with. Um, they just, you know, it, it was really hard for some people. Some people got it and some people, um, you know, it was a really fine line between what you really can say, how candid you really can be, how authentic could you really be. Um, at the time, um, so in terms of policy, uh, at the time the plane was being built while it was being flown, uh, policies and codes of conduct couldn't keep up with those changes. Um, they were constantly being reevaluated in almost real time and would change before you could even have the chance to write them off, write them down, and have the lawyers sign off on them. Um, many heated debates ensued about you know, where to draw the boundaries of acceptability. You know, for example, you know, would we allow fired anchors to keep their Twitter accounts you know, that were actually grown and developed while they were at the helm of, of the CNN brand? Um, you know, who actually gets to keep that account, the individual or the, the brand, the organization? So looking back, those efforts appear um, a bit as naive attempts to preserve an imaginary line between the individual as employee and brand, uh, which would ultimately become indistinguishable in the years following on social media. So, you know, now we turn to the present and, and how this is relevant to hashtag politics. So I'm just gonna share a quote from, that I read recently in an article um, by Dr. Heather Ford. Um, she's a digital methods fellow at Leeds University. And in a recent interview, she said, quote, we're witnessing a renewed interest in valuing of authenticity where content that is seen to be real and accurate is more likely to succeed. And let me emphasize the seen to be real, perceived to be real. So we have a, a predicament. Who wins social media when the game is tilted in favor of the loudest authenticity? You know, both the presumption of authenticity and the most convincing display of it. When coached and, when coached and scripted journalists, celebrities, YouTube stars, politicians are held to this standard, um, the most candid and convincing of the lot come out ahead, irrespective of the message. 
um, in this election, scripted stump speech candidates learn how to improvise or fake it until they make it, but when they fake it, the audience is really more likely to call bullshit. They can sense it. So for some, um, you know, it's probably obvious which candidate I'm referring to. Um, it comes without effort and inhibition. But um, how would social media, how does the social media milieu actually impact Hillary Clinton's campaign when she's heckled for being an establishment candidate? Her efforts to reach connected voters, even making a cameo on Broad City, um, have been deemed Al Gore-esque, um, trying too hard to be in with the cool kids and falling flat in the process. So how might this privilege an anti-establishment candidate like Donald Trump, um, who had a huge head start as a product of reality television, a professional attention speaker, and television uh, and Twitter impresario. I'm just gonna end on those two questions. <laughs> I don't have the answers. Okay, there's a huge conversation going on about politics using hashtags on social media. And if you're not participating in it, you're not part of the national conversation. You're only part of the conversation around your dinner table. You're only part of the conversation at your office. But the national conversation is actually happening on social media, and it's huge. We have a cultural shift going on now where people want to be using social media to engage with politics. They want to be able, you know, think about this. If you go to a website and you see something you like and you use social media, one of the first things you want to do is share what you're looking at to your social media channels in hopes of getting a conversation going on with the people who you're connected with on social media. That's a very different attitude towards using websites than we used to have, to the point where we now have to think about our web presence not as how good is our website, but our entire web presence. What's our website? How is it interactive with, with social media? What social media channels are we on? What are we saying on those social media channels? Who are we talking to on those social media channels? Are they talking to us back? Are we paying attention when they talk back to us? Because the last thing you want to do on social media is just put stuff out there and not respond. Because then you're using the channel as a broadcast tool and you aren't being social. And social isn't just a conversation between you and one other person. It's not two-way conversations. When was the last time any of you went to a party and saw two people sitting in the corner talking to each other all night and thought that they were being social? No, they're being antisocial. Social is a three-dimensional conversation space where everybody's talking to each other back and forth in every direction, where the people you're talking to are talking to people you're not even talking to. The audience has its own network. It has its own, its own megaphone. So we now have a situation where politicians are starting to get that, especially Donald Trump. And think about this. When it comes to politics, we used to think, oh yeah, you know, you go out there, you shake hands with the voters. You go out there, you kiss babies. You put yard signs, you get people to put yard signs up in their, neighbor, in, their, in their front yard. Why? Because you're creating touches from the campaign to the voter. And those touches convert into votes at some ratio. It varies depending on what neighborhood you go to. You know, if you go to a neighborhood which is, you know, predominantly Democrat and you're a Republican, you aren't going to convert a lot of votes by shaking hands. But you might get some. If you're a Republican and you go to a Republican neighborhood, you might get a lot of votes during the primary as a result of that. Sometimes just showing up is the big difference between getting that person's vote and not getting that person's vote. Well, you know, 
that other candidate came by and asked me for their vote and you didn't. Sorry. Right? Well, now you've got Donald Trump tweeting. You've got candidates on social media across the board, but Donald Trump is actually tweeting himself. So when he says something, when he interacts with somebody on or retweets somebody, that's the candidate actually interacting directly with a voter who may not ever have had the chance to shake hands with that candidate ever. And a lot of people are being really, really engaged by that. I think that the more politicians and the more government officials use social media to engage with the public, and I don't mean just talk at the republic, but I mean to engage with the republic, the more likely we're going to solve one of the oldest problems we have in American politics. People don't trust the government. People don't think that the government responds to their needs generally as the people or individually as, an ingle, as a single person. But if you start to interact with the candidates or you see the candidate interacting with other individual people, that attitude changes. All of a sudden you start to think, oh my God, that candidate is actually interacting with real people in front of other real people. And that's a game changer. And the more politicians and the more government officials that do this, the more we're going to start seeing a change in the way people think about politics. Now, the whole idea of hashtags when it comes to social media is a really interesting one because hashtags in, in, its, in its practice are a conversation aggregator. When you use a hashtag, somebody can click on the hashtag and see all the people who are talking about that topic using that hashtag in real time. So if there are a thousand people across 50 states that are talking about the same issue, using that hashtag, you can watch that conversation, you can participate in that conversation by joining in and using that hashtag in that conversation. In Black Lives Matter, which we uh, heard um, Catherine mention, or earlier with the Yes All Women hashtag, or during the debates with the GOP debate hashtag or the Dem debate hashtag, we have millions of people engaging in politics and in discussions about issues. Millions. Yes, all women and Black Lives Matter were getting two, three million um, uses a day in their early phases. Those are really, really big national conversations. But they're also really noisy conversations. And so you want to figure out, well, how do I get heard in that? And so the key is to kind of pair hashtags in order to figure out, you know, in order to say, here's the busy conversation. And I'm going to pair it with this hashtag over here of a community that I'm established in. Or a community that's a little smaller, a little less busy, and a little more likely to retweet me. Because I don't want to say the same thing over and over and over and over and over again and repeat the same tweet in order to make sure that it gets into that busy hashtag conversation over and over and over again. Because then somebody's going to look at my Twitter page and all they're going to see is I tweet the same thing over and over and over again and they're going to unfollow me or not follow me or not care about what I have to say because I'm boring. But if I can tweet it once and get a thousand people to retweet me, or even a hundred people or twenty people to retweet me, then I don't have to repeat myself, but my message gets repeated into that busy hashtag stream over and over and over again without me losing that interest level. And I get that third-party validation of somebody else is sharing my message into that stream. Somebody else thought it was interesting and they said, hey, the people who follow me, check this out. Or, hey, you people over there in that hashtag community, check out what this guy just said. 
And that's really powerful. And you can learn an awful lot from what people are, say, are using hashtags and what they're pairing their hashtags for. So up here on the screen, we have the Never Trump campaign, which was a hashtag that you know, was this attempt to try to block Donald Trump, a big campaign that was orchestrated by mainstream Republican leaders, right? Which uh, Megan and I's friend, Matt, uh, Matt By, wrote a great piece on why it would never work, and he was spot on. But there are things you can learn from this. When you look at this, this is a diagram from one of my favorite websites called hashtagify.me. Hashtagify. It's a great word, right? Dot me. And what you do is you can put any uh, hashtag into this, and it shows you what hashtags are paired with that hashtag. And what do we learn here? We learn that Never Trump is paired with Cruz Crew, with um, Unite with Cruz. So a couple of big... Uh, Ted Cruz hashtags were paired frequently with it. It's also paired with the Never Hillary uh, group. And the TCOT, which is the top conservatives on Twitter, a very conservative, very active group of people using the TCOT hashtag. And PJNet, which is another very conservative hashtag community. Because when you use the same hashtag over and over again, it's not just a conversation aggregator, it's actually a community, a conversation community, a group. It becomes an organic group. You don't have to register it, you just use it and become part of that conversation. TCOT has been one of the most popular political hashtags for maybe seven years now. Really, really, really active, right? But what we see here is that, by and large, the people who were using the Never Trump hashtag were people from the right who were attacking Donald Trump because he wasn't a real Republican, because he wasn't conservative enough. But if we look at the less formal um, Never Hillary campaign, which was a derivative of the Never Trump, which, because the Never Trump was actually a deliberate campaign, one of the things we see here is that the Trump people are using it. The never uh, the, um, the the so he's getting it. She's getting it from the Trump people. It's changed a little bit since last week, so that's interesting. Uh, last week we were we were seeing Teacot showing up here, and we were seeing Sanders things showing up here. So we were seeing Cruz and and Teacot and Sanders, which means that Hillary was getting the never Hillary not just from the left which is the corollary group that would have been attacking Trump, but she's also getting it from the right. So while Donald Trump's Never Trump campaign and effort was coming from only one side of the political spectrum, the Never Hillary activity is coming from both sides of the political spectrum. So that's a pretty revealing piece of information. And all you have to do is look to see what, what hashtags are paired with each other to, uh, to get that sense. Why is this important, though? To me, one of the things that social media in particular does, and these aggregation of voices through hashtags, is it creates a powerful social capital in politics. It gives people who don't have financial capital, the big money to donate to candidates, a way to compete with the big, with the big donors by pairing financial capital that they have against social capital that we build up by creating these communities of people that are sharing their ideas. 
And if in that respect, you know, E.E. E. Schatzneider used to write about the semi-sovereign people, great book in political science for those of you who've been studying political science. And he talked about how the underrepresented will always, uh, you know, the, 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 the people, the underrepresented are systematically in that case in our politics system because it's rigged towards the organized people. It's rigged towards the well-financed uh, people. And that's the way the political system was was running when he wrote the book back in the 1960s. I think it was the 60s. Uh, and now that's changing. Now we have Black Lives Matter, right? Black Lives Matter was this process. It's, it actually started before Black Lives Matter. It started when the New York Police Department ran their hashtag campaign, MyNYPD. What did they want? They wanted you to take a picture of you holding out like, arms around a New York City police officer smiling. But what happened was people who were critical of the New York City Police Department hijacked the hashtag and started posting pictures of police brutality in New York. Problem though, the pictures were all from Occupy Wall Street, which happened with the previous police commissioner or chief and the previous policy. And since the new leadership had come in and new policies had been implemented, violence, police violence was going down. And the problem wasn't that, there was, that they weren't being successful, it's that they ran this hashtag campaign without prepping the audience, without promoting what their successes had been, their changes. And as a result of that, my NYPD, blew, my, my NYPD hashtag campaign begat my LAPD hashtag campaign and my Phoenix PD hashtag campaign and all of these other city uh, police departments showing police brutality in those other cities. And then when Ferguson erupted, and the Ferguson hashtag evolved, uh, there was already a conversation about police brutality out there that it could take root in. And it became huge. And then it rippled into Eric Garner. And now it became a big issue with the presidential campaign to the point where Black Lives Matter has become one of the biggest hashtags out there. There's a candidate running in, for mayor in Baltimore who's one of the leading voices in the, in, in the Black Lives Matter movement. A Black Lives protest, Matters protest at the Netroots Nation, the progressive gathering against Bernie Sanders because he wasn't focusing on the immediate issue of racism, he was only focusing on the long-term issue of economic injustice and racism, forced him two days later to hire somebody from the Black Lives Matter to run his communication operation. That's real power. And it's social capital that drove it, and it's hashtags that drove it. So this is a great opportunity for all of us to really get involved in politics in a way that's meaningful, in a way that's impactful, in a way that overcomes this sense that government doesn't listen to us and that we shouldn't even bother. Now we should bother because they can and they will listen to us because if they don't, everybody else is listening to us at the same time and it will ultimately hit them in the polls. It will ultimately hit them in the fundraising. You can turn this all into a real powerful tool to really raise up social power against well-heeled financial power that's been dominating politics for years. You've been listening to the CUNY Lecture Series. For more, visit CUNY Radio online at cuny.edu radio. The CUNY Lecture Series is a production of the Office of University Relations.